For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Welcome to Intergenerational Politics with Jill Weinbanks and Victor Shi, where we host weekly political discussions that are engaging and relevant to all generations. As always, we want to thank you for listening to Intergenerational Politics. If you haven't done so already, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts to support future episodes. And we also have a website, intergenerationalpolitics.com. This is Victor Shi. I'll be an incoming freshman next year at UCLA. Um, co-host this podcast with Jill as well. Hi, I'm Jill Weinbanks, the co-host with Victor and also the author of The Watergate Girl, which I hope you'll all take time to read. Um, I also was lucky enough to be general counsel of the Army, as well as writing about um, my experience as the only woman on the Watergate trial team. And I'm an MSNBC legal analyst. So for the past four years, Donald Trump has stretched the powers of the presidency beyond all constitutional parameters and norms from firing of lifelong civil servants like Colonel Alexander Vindman, Ambassador Marie Ivanovich, Chris Krebs, and many others, um, to using institutions of government like the DOJ to pardon guilty associates and to investigate political opponents. So I think for a lot of us, that raises two kind of things that we want to explore with you, um, Representative um, Lou, which is first, why isn't Trump and his supplicants being held accountable for their egregious actions? And two, what reforms can be made in the next Congress and next administration to ensure that government oversight um, really, I guess we do have government oversight um, to, to prevent future abuses. So um, we are so honored to be joined by Congressman Ted Lou from California, who is the perfect guest to talk about all of these issues. He serves on the House Judiciary and Foreign Affairs Committee and previously served on the House Committee for Oversight and Reform. And uh, I almost feel embarrassed to say this, but um, I actually didn't realize that UCLA is part of the area that Representative Lou represents. And um, so I feel extremely honored um, to have such a great member of Congress, hopefully next year when I'm there. But um, either way, thank you so much for being here. Uh, thank you, Victor and Joe, for having me. And uh, thank you, Victor, for your question. Trump was, in fact, held accountable. The American people fired him. And one reason they fired him is because he repeatedly put himself and his friends and family above the American people, above our country. And you had a very convincing win by Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, who won by over 7 million votes. And uh, multiple electoral votes as well. Uh, so the best way really in democracy to hold elected officials accountable uh, is to fire them when they don't do a good job. And that in fact happened. So given your role on the House Oversight Committee, um, I want to talk a little bit about the role of oversight because uh, to me that is one of the most important things that Congress does. Um, my Jill's pin today is a picture of the Capitol building because of that oversight role and all that you do to oversee what the executive branch is doing. 
And I think you'll probably agree with me that that is very important. So could we start with your giving us just an overview from your perspective of why oversight is important and what it means to our constitutional framework? Uh, absolutely. Now, what we saw in the last four years uh, was a presidential administration very resistant to oversight in a way uh, not done before by other administrations. Uh, prior to the Trump administration, no prior administration would simply blanket refuse to respond to congressional subpoenas. Under the Trump administration, you sort of have that happened a number of times. And it has now turned out, and it's my conclusion, that congressional subpoenas are largely meaningless. And they are meaningless because they cannot be enforced. The way that we currently enforce them is to go through litigation. So right now, we're still litigating the case of Don McGahn to have him respond to a congressional subpoena issued by the House Judiciary Committee. By the time that litigation is completed, sometime in 2021 or even 2022, no one's going to care. No one cares right now. And so if you can't enforce congressional subpoenas, then in fact, they at some level become totally meaningless, which is why I've introduced legislation to fix that. The Supreme Court has recognized that Congress has inherent contempt power to get people to comply with congressional subpoenas. We've used that power in the past. One of the ways that that power can be used is to fine people money if they ignore congressional subpoenas. So under my bill, it would simply authorize a change in the House rules to allow the House to go ahead and find witnesses who ignore congressional subpoenas. And my hope is we can get that done next term. I think that is an excellent piece of legislation that would really make a difference in the ability of Congress to avoid the stonewalling that you've encountered so far. I mean, even things like questioning people from Homeland Security about children in cages is something that he has stonewalled and you haven't been able to do. But traditionally, um, it's been much more effective. And I don't know if Victor's generation has any memory of anything like that. Um, I can remember back, I mean, really Watergate started with Senator Irvin's committee which was really an oversight committee. It wasn't investigating crimes. It was investigating what laws could be passed to change what had happened. And of course, the result was very significant legislation, some of it undone by Citizens United and other, um, other things in the courts and elsewhere. But um, in terms of, of oversight, traditionally, how has it worked? Uh, so traditionally, what would happen is you would negotiate with witnesses, and this is both in the public and private sector, uh, to get them to uh, testify before a congressional committee or to answer uh, document requests and so on. And usually they're amenable. Maybe you don't get everything you ask for, but maybe you'll get you know 75% of what you ask for. Uh, and at some point, if there is a breakdown, then you could in fact issue a congressional subpoena. And in the past, most people actually would respond and, and follow the congressional subpoena. Unfortunately, in the Trump administration, they learned that they could just ignore it and not have any consequence. And so we, we need to fix that. And my legislation doesn't actually require any sign off by the Senate or by the executive branch. It's simply a change to the House rules, which can be done by uh, a majority vote in the House of Representatives. So, we could clearly pass this next term if we if we wanted to. 
and oversight is so important because it highlights to the American people uh, what is happening uh, in the executive branch uh, or in the private sector. It allows members of Congress to ask questions. It allows the witnesses to provide information to American people. And a lot of what oversight does is to shine a light on any problems that may need addressing. Now, I'm assuming, of course, that the Biden administration will not stonewall, that they will cooperate with what is routine congressional oversight. Um, but hopefully your law passes so that it becomes something that is enforceable in the future. But let's look at what are some of the things that you, if you had been able to enforce subpoenas, would have investigated in the last four years? And maybe more importantly, what are the things that you think need to be reviewed now? What kind of oversight do you think would help to, um, to fix what went wrong in the last four years? Uh, so there were a number of investigations that got stonewalled. Doesn't mean they're closed, you said you couldn't get any more information. Uh, my view is we should simply follow the facts where they may lead. And if any of these investigations lead to potential criminal conduct, then that would be a decision uh, that the next attorney general uh, will have to make. And that should be made free of any political influence. Uh, we know that uh, there were a number of uh, shady things that happened, um, even at the beginning of the Trump presidency, for example, the inaugural committee and potential influence from uh, foreign governments. We also know that throughout the presidency, you have people getting special favors uh, from the president. We know there is, for example, an ongoing investigation into bribery for pardons. Uh, so there's a lot of sort of different investigations that are open that we should, uh, I think, just follow the facts and see where it leads us. You, you mentioned the next attorney general, so I have to follow up by asking any uh, insight into who that might be? I, I have uh, no insight. Um, <laughs> my view is that uh, president like Biden will, will nominate a very good competent attorney general, and I look forward to working with that person uh, on the House Judiciary Committee who I sit. Yeah, for sure. Um, well, you touched on a lot that we definitely want to get into later on in the podcast, but I, for now, you know, besides congressional oversight, there's another protection that Jill um, very much knows about that was created after the Watergate scandal in order to lessen um, corruption and abuse in our government, and that is uh, the system of inspectors general. Um, you know, inspectors general for our audience um, are civil servants usually tasked with uh, ensuring that government agencies run without waste, fraud, and abuse, but in the Trump era, um, I think, like, will find a lot, um, is that many AG, uh, IGs were fired, um, allegedly because Trump lost confidence in their ability to do their jobs. And so um, I just want to just mention, a, there was this one stat online that said uh, in April and May 2020, um, the United, uh, United States President uh, Donald Trump dismissed uh, IGs of five cabinet departments in the space of six weeks. Um, those Some of those include Mike Atkinson on April 3rd, Glenn Fine uh, from the Defense uh, on April 7th, Christy Grimm from uh, Health and Human Services, um, also in April. So um, I think all of these are kind of patterns of how um, you know these IGs were fired because they spoke they spoke truth to power and pointed out wrongdoing in the Trump administration. So I guess first, would you agree with Donald Trump's claim that he's losing his confidence in these um, IGs' uh, ability to do their jobs? Uh, the House of Representatives has in fact passed um, a democracy reform legislation. 
Part of that includes legislation to strengthen attorney uh, inspectors general, um, which includes one of my bills. And what we saw during the Trump administration is an attack on inspectors general, and that was very unfortunate. These inspectors general don't actually have any formal power to uh, take action. So they can't fire people. Uh, they can't make regulations. They don't make policy. What they instead do is simply highlight facts and they unearth evidence and they write a report and they let people see uh, what happened. And that should be welcome in the federal government. If you're an agency head, you would want to know if there's bad things going on in your agency or if people are engaged in conduct that they should not. Uh, so it was uh, very disappointing that the transition actually went after inspectors general when in fact they should be embracing them because you should want to know if there's fraud, waste, and abuse happening, and you should want to uh, stop that. Under the Biden administration, I think you're going to have a very different outlook where they will respect and encourage inspectors general to do their job, which is to basically bring fraud, waste, and abuse to the attention of the American people and to Congress. Yeah, for sure. Is there anything that you would want to see? I guess, like, I guess, is there anything you would want to do with the Biden administration, specifically in Congress, legislation-wise, um, to protect IG so they don't simply get fired for doing their job and exposing government malfeasance? Uh, so one way is to uh, pr pr provide more notice to Congress uh, when the president is taking actions against uh, inspectors general, uh, and that's uh, one of the things my bill does. Another way. Uh, would to make it harder for the president to fire inspectors general. Uh, there might be some constitutional issues with that, so we have to be, be careful around that issue. Uh, but what Trump showed is a lot of what our democracy relied on are actually norms that all presidents followed and normal elected officials followed. And he would just start breaking those norms. And the question is, well, how do you fix that? Because uh, sometimes you, you can't actually fix it because the Constitution does, in fact, give the president a lot of power and discretion. It generally gives the president the ability to um, hire and fire uh, his uh, top uh, political appointees and to ha have basically the people that he wants in place. And usually um, presidents would respect basic norms such as, well, even though the president has that power, he's just not going to willy-nilly fire and hire FBI directors, for example. Uh, Trump started to break that. And it's not clear that Congress could, in fact, do anything about it because of the constitutional issues. Now, at the same time, it's also not lost on American people what Trump did for four years. And because of his violations of norms, I think that did go into people's uh, thinking when they were deciding, do they want four more years of this or do they want a joe biden who's going to bring back normalcy yeah and thank god we do have joe biden um who will be our next president and like you said there is a lot of fixing to do so i will pass off to jill who um will also get into uh, the doj and some of the disturbing actions in that department yeah you mentioned the department of justice and i do want to pursue that a little bit um and get your input on what's happening at doj um, for me it's one of the most disturbing aspects of the past four years. Uh, since Trump's first Attorney General Sessions, through the current one, Attorney General Barr, with Matthew Whitaker in between, we've seen the Department of Justice acting routinely as the president's lawyer 
forgetting that they represent the people of America. I know when I worked for justice, one of the proudest things I did was to go into court and say, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, on behalf of the United States of America, and that's not what's happening now. Now you have the attorney general representing the president, trying to intervene in civil lawsuits by, uh, for example, E. Jean Carroll, and doing all sorts of things that are terrible. I mean, go through the list of things like um, how Barr handled the Mueller report, Lafayette Square, um, many, many things. So you're a member of the House Judiciary Committee, and you have a role in uh, monitoring his behavior, Attorney General Barr's. So what is your opinion that you can offer to us now about his conduct overall? And then we can go into some specific things that I found very disturbing. Uh, my view is uh, Attorney General Bill Barr was a horrible Attorney General, and his actions really show that he was viewing himself as Trump's personal attorney uh, instead of Attorney General for the United States. All of us in the federal government had to do one thing before we could enter federal service, which is we had to take an oath. And that oath was not to a political party, it was not to the president, it was not to any individual. It was the Constitution of the United States. And Bill Barr seemed many times to not have realized that and was simply a factotum for uh, Donald Trump and just basically doing Trump's bidding, violating all sorts of norms and taking actions that were very harmful to uh, the rule of law and to democracy. It really wasn't until one of Barr's last actions uh, that uh, might have saved Barr a little bit when he in fact uh, did say he's not gonna cross a line and just make up that there was mass election fraud. So Bill Barr at least did stand firm and say, you know, essentially there was no mass election fraud. So on that one point, uh, he was not willing to cross the line, but on other lines he did cross. Yeah, I, and I would say that you can never take one good thing that someone did and have it override um, all the bad. So let's look at some of those. It started before he even was confirmed with his audition memo, what I'm calling his audition memo, where he basically wrote an unrequested memo saying the president has total control and power. It was this unitary theory of government. Um, and yet he got confirmed. Do you think that should have been a clue that Congress should have said, whoa, this is really going too far? Uh, absolutely. Uh, first of all, who just sort of writes a huge memo, right, out of the blue? Um, but he was quite smart. He knew Trump had authoritarian instincts. He knew that that memo would resonate with uh, Trump's view of power and authority. Uh, and he got the job. Uh, but I do agree with you that uh, the U.S. Senate uh, should have seen that huge red flag. Because if you take that theory, essentially, um, the president uh, is the unitary actor and can do anything he wants uh, in the area of prosecutions, then in, in fact, um, there is no line anymore between um, the rule of law and the president. He just becomes the law unto himself. And the Supreme Court has shot that down. Uh, in fact, the Supreme Court has said more than once that no one is above the law, including the president. Uh, but if you took the unitary uh, view that Barr does, the president is the law. 
Exactly. And, and that is, of course, what Richard Nixon believed when he said, if I do it, it's not illegal because I'm the president. But um, let's, let's talk about what he did with the Mueller report, which was first impressions are hard to change. And he created the first impression. He wrote um, a letter that laid it out, and then he had a press conference. And by the time the actual report was released, so that you could see that what he said wasn't true, many people had already said, oh, no collusion, no, no obstruction, I'm done, I don't have to pay attention anymore. Um, is, is there some way that he could have been stopped from doing that? Not based on the way the current regulations are written. I think hopefully the next attorney general will change it so that with any special counsel report that the report is delivered simultaneously both to the attorney general and to Congress at the same time. So you don't sort of get this pre-spin by the attorney general uh, that can shape people's you know, hearts and minds before anyone even sees the report. Any chance that Congress would consider creating a new law that creates the special counsel, uh, reverting, I would say, back to something like governed Archie Cox as the Watergate special prosecutor, where we really were independent. We did not report to the attorney general. Um, it's hard to have the attorney general who reports to the president involved in an investigation of the president, no matter how ethical that person is. It's a difficult position. So having true independence is something that, you know, I hope that Congress will consider in enacting legislation that would protect that. You think that's possible? It is, and I would absolutely support that. I also have to say that I think their primary failure with the Mueller report uh, was with Mueller himself. When you read the report, for example, on obstruction of justice, he pretty much lays out there was obstruction of justice. Yes. Uh, he then, for whatever reason, chickened out and wimped out and didn't actually say um, that, in fact, it was obstruction of justice. It's sort of like saying, you know, he's telling you, hey, here's a piece of bread. I'm gonna put a piece of ham on it. I'm gonna put a slice of cheese on it. I'm gonna put another piece of bread on it. And then we all go, well, that's a ham sandwich. And he goes, well, I'm not calling it that. And I'm not gonna you know, opine on what it is. Um, all he had to do is call it a ham sandwich. And he refused to do that for some unknown reason. I think he just wimped out and chickened out. And that made it very difficult given uh, the way that uh, Bill Barr spun it and the way that the news cycle works and it perverted what his report really shows, which is that Donald Trump committed multiple felonies. That's a great analogy um, for thinking about how it happened. Um, uh, one other thing I wanna ask about Barr particularly is the role he's played in the Durham investigation and now his appointment of Durham as special counsel, despite the fact that the law clearly says that a government employee cannot be appointed and Durham is the US attorney. So he is a government employee. Um, is there something that can be done about that? You know, that's a good question. Uh, so let me look into it. I uh, am thinking that the new attorney general might uh, take a look at this and, and take some action as well. Now, at the same time, I don't have any problem if they want to review, you know, well, what did the DOJ and FBI investigators do? Because I think they, in fact, acted perfectly appropriately. And one reason we know that is because there are multiple convictions uh, out of that investigation, right? Paul Manafort, um, 
for example, is in prison because of that investigation. Uh, we have numerous other people who were uh, convicted. Uh, so that was an investigation that absolutely revealed uh, felonious conduct. And so I'm not worried uh, that they want to you know, look at what the investigators, investigators did and because uh, it turned out that they did quite a bit and they were successful in quite a lot of the uh, prosecutions. So we're putting a lot on the next attorney general um, because there is a mess being left. Morale is very low. And I, I think maybe we can talk about without knowing who it's going to be, what kind of criteria are we looking for when uh, Gerald Ford became president and chose a new attorney general after taking over from uh, Nixon? He was very careful in picking someone who had the greatest integrity, who was completely independent, not political. And I'm just wondering if those are some criteria that would help to restore the credibility of the Department of Justice again. Absolutely. I think the next attorney general needs to be someone uh, with complete integrity, but also someone who's strong so that when the American people see decisions made, they understand that it's being made by the attorney general and not because the president told him or her to do so. And I also think that president like Biden is very, not only very smart, but also a man of integrity. So he's also not going to try to influence attorney general the way that Trump repeatedly has. So I think we're gonna see a back, a return back to normalcy again in the next four years. So let me move to the subject of the Constitution's Foreign Emoluments Clause. It's basically an anti-corruption measure that prohibits any person holding any office of profit or trust without the consent of Congress from accepting any present emolument, office, or title of any kind, whatever, from any king, prince, or foreign state. And uh, that, to me, means there's some obvious violations by President Trump uh, of the, that clause. His hotels, which have brought in foreign money as profit, his other business dealings with foreign countries and states. But so far, it's been very hard to hold him accountable. There are some lawsuits still pending that could succeed. But is there something you think that Congress could do to assure compliance and accountability without amending the Constitution? you know, some law that you might pass. Yes, that's a great point. Um, we could actually also pass a law that says uh, the president cannot do that. I actually have a domestic version of this. So I authored uh, what I call the Swamp Act. And as you know, Donald Trump uh, went not only to golf courses uh, quite a bit on his own properties, but to a lot of his properties. Uh, all over the place, such as Mar-a-Lago uh, and other facilities. And every time he went to one of his own properties, uh, he was making money uh, for uh, himself and his family and his business. And that's because when the president travels, you have Secret Service, you have a huge amount of staff. Um, I had this amazing opportunity during the Obama administration to uh, ride on Air Force One with then President Obama. And it just sort of was surprising me how much staff just travel with the president all the time. And so all this staff is staying at these Trump properties with federal taxpayer dollars. And essentially the taxpayer is 
subsidizing all these Trump properties. Uh, so my law is pretty simple. Actually, my bill, and hopefully it will become law next term. It's pretty simple. It just says, look, if you're the president or vice president or member of cabinet, and you go to one of your properties uh, and federal taxpayers or paying the money to lodge, or federal taxpayer money is being used to lodge there and to pay for food and drinks, you just have to reimburse the treasury uh, for the profits that uh, your property has made. Uh, so there are, I think, ways through laws to stop their grifting behavior we saw with Donald Trump. That's a, a great piece of legislation and a great answer. Um, you could also prohibit him from having a lease uh, of government property uh, to make a profit. Um, paying the hotels is a good one. And um, I, I hope Congress will take a look at that. Um, in the meantime, should more be done to investigate the president's possible violations of both the foreign and domestic emoluments clauses? I personally would support that. Again, I just think we should follow the facts where it may lead. And then based on whatever conclusions are drawn, then the next attorney general can make a decision as to what to do with that. Um, I, I think that's a better approach than to simply say, we're not even going to, to look. Uh, now, again, that's gonna be up to the Biden administration as to how they wanna proceed because there was just so much grifting and violations of norms and in my view, uh, potential illegal conduct by the president and uh, his friends and family these last four years. If the response of my Twitter followers is any indication, the American people would welcome having some accountability. Yeah, and we've touched on a lot of the ways that, you know, the Trump administration has um, just violated norms. But I think we'd also be remiss if we didn't mention um, the multiple Hatch Act violations, um, which came as a result of federal employees engaging in political activities. Um, federal watchdog agency announced that uh, White House trade advisor Peter Navarro repeatedly violated the Hatch Act. Uh, Kellyanne Conway has as well. Um, we've seen this in the past with this administration in terms of the use of the White House and Marines and Park Police for the uh, convention. And Mike Pompeo has been you know, accused of violating the Hatch Act due to his speech in Israel during the RNC convention. Um, so there's so many examples, but I think kind of like the Monuments Clause, there really hasn't been enforcement because it's up to the president. So I guess, um, what is the reason for the Hatch Act and what does it specifically prohibit? Uh, so one of the things the Hatch Act prohibits is political activities by federal employees. Uh, so taxpayers are funding right federal employees, and they shouldn't be engaging in partisan political activity. We saw a lot of that happen um, based, for example, uh, on the numerous examples that you, Victor, uh, just outlined. And when that's happening, then it's unfair because you have both Democratic, Republican, independent, and all sorts of different taxpayers funding federal employees. They shouldn't be just doing partisan political activity. Uh, uh, now, you're also right that if it's the president that is responsible for prosecuting or taking action against these Hatch Act violations, it's not going to happen if they're serving uh, their president with these partisan political activities. So that is a problem. Um, another problem that we saw, and I actually did introduce legislation to fix this, is uh, right now uh, in ethics, uh, government ethics, it's actually the Code of Federal Regulations, uh, you are prohibited from using your public office for private gain. Now, the penalty for that is you get a very nasty and stern letter 
from the administration. So it turns out that people started using the public office of private gain because it wasn't a huge consequence. And my legislation would actually make it uh, a, a misdemeanor uh, if you did that. And if you did repeatedly, it'd be a felony. So there are ways to sort of strengthen ethics rules as well that it's not just you getting a very nasty letter, but it's actually some consequences if you violate norms and ethics. Yeah. And we know there's going to be a lot of work to do in the next administration and Congress to ensure that there is uh, greater transparency, greater accountability, oversight, ethics. Um, and you seem to be a man with a wide array of bills already introduced that kind of go up this wheelhouse, which is oversight, ethics, uh, transparency, and accountability. Um, are there any other bills that you think our audience would be interested in or should kind of pay attention to um, in the next administration to address this issue? Uh, I, I think it's important that we put in these reform bills, uh, even though it's a Democratic administration and Joe Biden is not going to violate all these norms because you don't know who is going to be president, you know, 12 years later, 20 years later. This is something that just has to be done to strengthen our democracy. Uh, until now, we largely relied on the judgment and values of the president not to go do crazy things. And it turns out that sometimes you're going to get a president such as Donald Trump, that is going to violate norms uh, and, and push uh, really the line way past where it should be. And now we just have to put in actual laws uh, to make sure no future president does what Donald Trump uh, did these last four years. Big agreement on making uh, statutes supplant norms. Uh, and even things like turning over your tax returns should be a legal requirement. But Let's, let's look at one other aspect, which is based on my Watergate experience, um, where we had, as a result of public protest, a lot got done. Uh, after the Saturday Night Massacre, it was public outcry that led Richard Nixon to say, okay, I'll give you the tapes and I'll appoint a new special prosecutor to replace the one I just fired. It took only three days of protests. I'm just wondering if you think there is anything the American people can do now to help get us going again in terms of ethics and accountability, transparency in government when you have a president who wants to ignore norms and subvert our basic institutions. I think it's important for the American people to continue uh, speaking out and to let their elected officials know that they don't want to just sort of and amnesia about what happened these last four years, uh, that we want to put in reforms. Uh, Donald Trump has said he you know, wants to run again in four years. Um, and we also know that um, in the future, uh, it's certainly possible we'll get, uh, for example, another Republican president who may have authoritarian tendencies or a Democratic president who may have authoritarian tendencies. Uh, and so we just need to make sure we strengthen uh, our democracy and one way to do this is to learn the lessons of these last four years instead of just uh, forgetting about what actually happened. Mm -hmm. I think it's important for people to know that their representatives actually do listen to them, that it matters. Um, so please, as, as the Congressman has said, let him and your representatives know what you're thinking. Mm -hmm. um, Absolutely. So 
Yeah, definitely. And so let's end the podcast um, on perhaps a lighter, more hopeful note, um, which is by talking about your time in public service as an Asian American. Um, There obviously aren't many Asian Americans who are elected to serve in Congress or are involved in politics in general, hopefully, uh, although we're seeing uh, an increase um, in the past election. But I guess, can you talk about your journey as an Asian American, what difficulties you may have faced um, for pursuing politics? And any advice you give to me and other Asian Americans in my generation um, who may be interested in politics or uh, beginning our journey in politics? Uh, let me first start uh, by saying the U.S. Census showed that Asian Pacific Americans are the fastest increasing group in America. And a Pew Research report last year showed that there are now more immigrants from Asia to the United States than any other region in the world. So this growth is continuing. And if you actually look at this uh, presidential election, uh, two thirds of Asian Americans voted for Joe Biden and a number of Asian Americans uh, in states like Georgia and Arizona and Pennsylvania turned out to vote. Particularly in Georgia, some new stats came out showing that 55% of the Asian American voters who voted in 2020 had not voted in 2016. That's a pretty astounding surge. Mm-hmm. I think part of it may be explained by the hate crimes and hate incidents being committed against Asian Americans since this pandemic started. Uh, and when the President of the United States uses racist language like Kung Flu, I think that does make members of the community angry. And I think many of them turn out to vote in 2020 because they don't want to continue to have hate and um, anger directed at themselves or their family. And, with Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, I think we're again going to have uh, first of all respect for the Asian American community, but also um, no more racist language and hatred uh, being directed at the community. And then in terms of advice to um, you or, or other Asian Americans interested in government, it'd be the same advice I would give to anyone interested in government uh, or who wants to run. You just have to ask yourself, oh, why do you want to do that? And if you have a good reason that you can explain to yourself why you want to do that, then you should absolutely do it. And my view is that as far as I can tell, you only live once. And so if you want to be an elected official or a ballet dancer or a lawyer or a nurse, whatever it is you want to be, if you don't pursue it in this lifetime, there is no other lifetime in which you do it. So my view is whatever dream you have, you should go ahead and and pursue and, and then see what happens. For sure. That is the perfect way to end this podcast. I know just touching on um, what you said about Kung Flu and some of the uh, remarks that the president has made about it. Um, personally, for my parents, um, in 2016, they were both Trump supporters. As a result of um, the racist remarks that the president has used, they actually turned out and voted for Joe Biden, um, which was nice to see. But it was definitely turned, out a lot of, uh, turned off a lot of people. So um, that is great advice. And we thank you so much for being on this podcast. Jill and I enjoyed it so much. Thank, thank you. you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Intergenerational Politics. Be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts to support future episodes. Thanks so much. See you in our next episode.